Nancy Wyman, state Democratic chairwoman. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. And with us today is Nancy Wyman. This is the Donkey Talk Podcast with your host, Connecticut Democratic Party chairwoman, Nancy Wyman. Hi, I'm Nancy Wyman, the state Democratic Party chair. And today I'm honored to have as our guest, a close friend of mine for many years, our, our congressman from the 1st Congressional District, John Larson. A little bit about John is that uh, he definitely is an East Hartford young man. That's true. You know, um, he served in the legislature. He's going to tell I'm going to ask him to talk about his career and how he got started. Um, but I've got to tell you that uh, there are not many people I know that have sandwiches named after them in their own town. Um, Augie and Ray's has a great uh, reputation in East Hartford. And if you haven't been there, you should go. Yeah, it is. It's a great sandwich. Uh, and what is it? Well, it's uh, it's actually a, a special that Bobby DiPietro, who was a local uh, Italian farmer in town and great family and who's passed some years ago, but dedicated land and property to the town, et cetera. But he would bring in fresh peppers, native tomatoes, and then you get a, a sesame seed uh, 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 hard roll, and then it's uh, baked ham, peppers... Hmm tomatoes, uh, cheese, and a fried egg on a hard roll. Wow. And that's the Larson special. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Mark Shine ha- Burger has the Mark Shine Burger, though, there. So oh, he, he went up me. And you know what Billy Seattle says? Well, it's great. You got a sandwich. They named the building after me <laughs> that's right. in the motor vehicle department. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's true. It sounds like Billy, too. <laughs> so how did you get involved, John? In politics, I was born into it. You know, with the when you have a mother that's very active uh, politically, how she did it, we often ask ourselves. With eight kids uh, growing up in a federal housing project, how she still had time to volunteer, uh, and then was kind of selected out by her peers and was one of the first women to uh, be on the East Hartford Town Council, and. Uh, uh, Always uh, believed, much to my father's lament, he would say, oh, there she goes again. She's going to save the Democratic Party. I can't get a warm meal, but she's saving the Democratic Party. And she did save the Democratic Party. Well, she she really believed in giving back to the community and service. And so we were, uh, uh, that's how we were raised, is that you had to give back. And to my father's credit, too, I mean, the same same thing with him. He was... uh, he worked three jobs. We rarely saw him, but any time he had a spare moment, it seemed like he was always doing something for someone else. I remember in the winter, he finally uh, got a snowblower. He got this thing that he fixed up a junk. He was so proud of himself for uh, being able to fix it up that he then took it and did the whole circle in Mayberry Village so oh nobody would have to, have to plow. But uh, he, he uh, they taught those lessons early and often and... You know, back then, you know, used to make money. He'd go out, you grab a shovel and shovel someone's walk. But he'd say, you go up to Mrs. O'Brien and you make sure her walk is shoveled. And don't you guys take any money. <laughs> Mrs. O'Brien would come out with the best hot chocolate, though, anywhere oh, in the good. world. That, so it was all, all good stuff. So I, I think early values and uh, 
was, was the president of my fifth grade class and my really? sophomore class in high school and senior class in high school. And uh, I even got to serve with Kevin Brown. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, that's, that's you know, that's, that's big. And he went on to become the party chairman in East Hartford that's as right. well. And, he was in and of course, in man. East Hartford, we had the legendary Jim Fitzgerald, who was also party chairman, and the legendary Tim Moynihan, who you also served with in yeah, the, I did. the Connecticut Mav. General Assembly and was... Uh, uh, and his wife. Also, and his wife, Rosemary. And right. uh, they also served locally and Rosemary on the Board of Education for a number of years. So it got to be kind of a family affair in, sure did. Uh, in East Hartford. East Hartford is still a family affair. And people are still it involved. Is. And, you know, the Kehoe family, everybody seems to be lost in family. Uh, it was just Everybody's with involved. Dolores Kehoe on election night. Uh, yeah. Just remarkable. And Rich Kehoe, I think this is his 24th year Sir, uh, wow. serving on the council. Now, he served on the Board of Education before that, but uh, which is, and his dad, uh, Bernie, served as well. So yeah. the, 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 the family goes peace. way back. And that's true of a lot of, uh, it, of families East Hartford. East Hartford. Families. We, we love, East Hartford is, uh, you, you kind of feel at home when you get to know everybody there, and they're really wonderful and work hard. Um, and your family, your family, your, your brothers and sister, they're constantly working hard. So I, I you know, I've been fortunate to uh, met your mom and spent a lot of time with her, and uh, she is greatly missed, uh, great lady. But now I'm going to get you on to uh, now in the, you're in Congress for how many years? This is my 21st year in Congress. My goodness, that's great. My, how time flies when you're having a good time. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> most people think because we're Democrats and we come from a blue state that we've been in the majority. The fact of the matter is that this past year is the first year we've been in the majority in eight years. And in the 20 years, we've only been in control four. Wow. So, uh, and the last time we were in control, the aforementioned, you and I were talking before, Chris Dodd. Yes. Uh, was in the Senate, as was uh, uh, Joe, Joe Lieberman, Lieberman. And that's when we were able to adopt the Family uh, Leave Act. And also, uh, uh, Chris Dodd, I mean, probably one of the most incredible tasks, never gets talked about because it was good news. He also was able to do uh, uh, Dodd-Frank and reform uh, the whole banking system, et cetera. And as you'll recall, Ted Kennedy passed away in the midst of all of that. And Ted wanted no one else other than Chris Dodd uh, to bring the Affordable Care Act to the floor. And of course, he did. So two of the most major pieces of legislation that one could pass in a lifetime, yeah. Chris Dodd did them both in one year. It was amazing. Absolutely. Pretty amazing. It really is. But, you know, we, we have some great history in, of what you're doing in Congress now, too. And uh, now that I'm at a certain age, um, <laughs> I really think that uh, what you're bringing out. I didn't think you were social, eligible yet for Social, social Security. Security. <laughs> I only wasn't eligible because I had a job before. Now that I don't have a job, I am eligible for Social Security. <laughs> Let's talk about that, though. Sure. Yeah, that, the social Security and, um, you know, and, and do you remember when it was signed into law and, you know, what was going on back then? Well, the I wasn't time? quite around in 1935 <laughs> yet. I know I look at no, but No, uh, not at all. But. but yeah, no, I know the history about it. And uh, as chairman of the committee, you get exposed to a lot of the history. And 
we're blessed in Washington. And I don't know that many people understand uh, the vast research engine that we have called the Library of Congress, but it's pretty remarkable. And I do spend a lot of time there uh, because uh, as a former history teacher, I just get enwrapped in everything that has transpired in our great nation. And when you think how Roosevelt and Frances Perkins, who was the labor secretary, the first woman cabinet member, uh, really he gave her the assignment to bring Social Security to fruition. And it was as much and equally as important back then, it was much unemployment compensation as it was old age and retirement. Social Security would take many other changes. It was three parts to the bill. It was um, unemployment, old age and retirement, and it was also grants to states. Now, all that would evolve over time. But even back then, and uh, people like to say it was bipartisan, well, it only became bipartisan when you had to vote on it. So the motion to recommit on the floor shows a deeply divided House. And the motion to recommit was to send the bill back to committee and start over because ideologically, a lot of Republicans thought this was too much of a reach towards socialism. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but then when final passage came, because the practicality of the bill and what it was set up to do uh, has only it, it only rings truer today uh, than it did uh, as well back in 1935. And what I like to point out, Nancy, is that we don't have to go back to 1929 anymore. We only have to go back to 2008. And let me explain. So back then they they addressed this, and you know, lo and behold, the Republicans voted against it in the motion in the committee and on a motion to recommit. But on final passage. It was nearly unanimous because they knew the impact. And it's become since then America's number one insurance program Mm -hmm. and number one anti-poverty program. 90% of the elderly were in poverty back in 1935. You know, the the devastation of the depression, et cetera. So, uh, but you don't have to go back to 1929 and relive this. And some people can't even relate to a depression and what that means. It's hard for people, you know, even our children, you know, who we've pretty much, you know, they've been blessed to have uh, had a grown up in different times and parents that wanted to make sure they were providing the best and helping them get into the best schools and whatever. Uh, they have set of challenges in and of themselves. But in 2008, when we experienced the greatest recession since the Great uh, Depression, of all Americans have not recovered their wealth and assets since that recession in 2008. And during that time, Social Security never missed a payment. Never missed a payment for uh, retirement, never missed a payment for disability, for spouses, or dependent coverage, which of course, which the program has evolved in over the years. And some of the most ardent supporters, even though they started out maybe not being uh, exactly enthusiastic about the program, were Dwight David Eisenhower, you know, at the height of the McCarthy period, 
when socialism was being run. His brother wrote him a letter and said, after he strengthened social security, he said, I served with and fought with those GIs. I see what they came home to and what their families have endured. Anyone who's not for social security is stupid. (laughs) That was Dwight David Eisenhower. But he did expand the program because they saw the practicality of it. And they saw how it helped the economy as well as keeping people out of poverty and giving people transition opportunity. And of course, also, ironically, to spawn entrepreneurs. Where else can you fall back on knowing that you got a safety net, including a disability policy, a death benefit, spousal, dependent coverage, and of course, a pension plan that is matched So uh, it's a program that's rivaled by none. But to be quite frank about it, I think, uh, well, George Bush tried to privatize it, mistakenly so, back in 2005. Thank God he did not succeed. Because imagine in 2008, had Social Security been privatized, when people watched their 401ks become 101ks, Uh, they would have been devastated by that. So Social Security has remained true, has never missed a payment, but now with 10,000 baby boomers a day becoming eligible for Social Security and the millennials behind them being a smaller group, it's time to adjust the program. Long overdue, I might add. The last time that we did anything significant with the program, Nancy, was 1983. Ronald Reagan, a Republican, was the president. Tip O'Neill was the speaker. Howard Baker, a Republican, was the Senate leader. But Reagan, who was ideologically vehemently opposed to it, came to realize what Eisenhower did that this was going to be essential, especially just like a lot of businesses have. And when I went to the Aetna School for Insurance, we were trained that there's three legs on the stool. It's your personal savings and finance, your job and your pension, and social security. Those were the pillars of having an economic future, and we ought to build on those to make sure that they're safe and secure. Well, suffice it to say... Uh, And uh, first of all, this notion that the Republicans tried to push that Social Security is an entitlement. Well, we've kind of blown holes in that one by saying, really, an entitlement? Uh, You know, it's not an entitlement. It's an earned benefit. It's the insurance you paid for. And how does anyone verify that instantly? They look at their pay stub. It says FICA, which, oh, by the way, says... Federal insurance Insurance. contribution. Who's? Theirs. They get that. They understand that they've made a contribution. And yes, the employer does too, but it's a full write-off for the employer as well, just like other benefits are. It's not even a tax. It's a contribution. Federal insurance contribution to your retirement disability, and spousal fund matched by your employer who gets a tax write-off for it. So this is not rocket science from that standpoint, but it hasn't been addressed since 1983. Now, 
I just told you that there's 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring. There hasn't been an insurance adjustment since 1983. Have any of your insurances gone up that you've had since 1983? Oh, yeah. Or any of your viewers? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> of course they have, because Absolutely. you need to actuarially adjust. And that's what our bill is all about, is not only making Social Security solvent, but making it actuarially sound, which is what they call sustainably solvent, which means sustainable for 75 years and beyond, which is required by the law. So, uh, and we have the only bill out there that the actuary, the chief actuary, and that's who reports to the board of trustees for social security. That's what the law requires you to verify with that your bill is solvent, has said our bill is the only bill out there that not only is it sustainably solvent, but also enhances the benefits in Social Security. And I want to go into some of those because they're very important, especially yeah. to women. Please do. So everybody should know it's called the Social Security 2100 Act, right? Right. And um, so what, you know, we need some solvency in it. And why don't you explain what's in the bill? Besides, I do want to bring this up first, that um, I people don't realize that Democrats and Republicans do work together. They do. And um, you have had the ability to work, and you've always done that, you know, able to work with people on both sides of the aisle. And I want to thank you for doing that, because that's what's going to make this bill. It is. And this is, and, and Social Security is neither a Democrat or Republican Proposal. It's an American proposal because it's so deeply ingrained now in the very fabric of our country and being and has direct impact not only on individuals, but also in terms of economic development. There are approximately, Nancy, 125,000 seniors per congressional district. That's just the seniors who so there. There's the baseline for who receives Social Security in your district. You imagine, you know, if you're to cut that by for every year you raise the age, you cut the benefit seven percent. Or if you were to do nothing, as some of the Republicans have proposed, it's a twenty percent across the board cut. How could you possibly survive? And that's when we looked at this problem currently, as we speak, in the wealthiest nation in the world, where our erstwhile colleagues on the other side in 2017 handed out a $2 trillion tax cut that created $2 trillion of debt that 83% of the tax cut went to 1% of the people. By contrast, we have 90% of the people who haven't recovered their wealth and assets since 2008 and What they're simply looking to do is to pay into a program a very modest amount so that they get the benefits that are going to sustain them. Five million Americans live below the poverty level currently. That means they've paid in all their quarters. They've worked all their life. But the check that they receive from the federal government is below poverty level. That cannot happen. So what we've done 
has said the first thing we're going to do is make the new floor for Social Security 2100 be 125% of what the poverty level is. 125%? Well, what it does, again, is make sure that uh, nobody can retire into poverty. Work all your life and then find out that you're working in poverty. And where does this money go? This money goes right back into the community. It's an economic development issue. And here's the important thing, something you've dedicated your entire life to. And this really gets under my craw. Uh, For women especially, we started this whole program off talking about my mother and France and Perkins and other leaders, et cetera. But uh, imagine uh, that if you're a white woman, you got 80 cents for every dollar for your social security that your male counterpart does. If you're a black woman, you got 56 cents. If you're a Hispanic woman, you got 43 cents. I was so proud of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who came out and spoke about social security. She lost her father. As a very young girl, she had to go to work in a restaurant to help her mother meet ends. And when she was telling me, she said she had not realized that for Hispanic women, when they retire, that this disparity that exists. I said, oh, yeah, no, that's that's reality. So quickly, and John Lewis has seized upon this issue as well. He says this is becoming both a civil rights, a woman's issue and an economic issue, as well as a common sense, straightforward way to make sure that nobody retires into poverty and that in the wealthiest nation in the world, that people willing to pay themselves, pay their own way, that uh, for an earned benefit, that this is something, yes, they're entitled to receive it because they paid for it. That's right. <laughs> and so that's, uh, you know, making sure that it's 125% above poverty was important. Have a 2% across the board increase, which again, there hasn't been an increase in 50 years. And the last time Congress even made it actuarially sound was 36 years ago. We don't think that's too drastic. Have a COLA that the AARP has been calling for that actually reflects what seniors spend their money on because that's who the majority of the money goes to and where does that money go right back out into the community and so it helps every single community in terms of uh, economic development and nobody gets wealthy on social security the average payment for a male on social security eighteen thousand dollars female really fourteen thousand dollars this is nationwide now think about that Think about the cost of living in a state like Connecticut or California or New York City or any of these metropolitan areas. And think about getting $14,000 a year, and that's the only thing that you have to survive on. And why this is such a vital safety net. And where does that money go? Right back to the doctor visits, to the pharmacy, to the dry cleaners, to gas for the automobile, heating and cooling their homes. This doesn't, you know, this is not a lavish amount of money, and it keeps the economy going, and it keeps a whole generation and population of people out of poverty. Also, back in 83 was the last time we addressed the age for when you retire in terms of what will tax you. So in other words, if you uh, retire at 65 and are making uh, more than $24,000 and you're single, we tax you. And if you're a married couple and making more than 32, uh, we tax you. So what we've done is raise that amount 
And so about 12 million Americans will get a tax break as That's well, great. which will allow them to continue to work. And many do out of necessity and others do it because they frankly want to stay engaged. They want to stay there. They've been active all their lives. And I always encourage people to do so. So we shouldn't necessarily be whacking them uh, at the same time. You know, that money, again, <laughs> the money goes right back into the economy. And this is why I always scratch my head with some of my colleagues. Now, all the polling data on this, too. And, and again, 77 percent of the American people support expanding Social Security, even if it means paying a little bit more for it. Now, 72% of Republicans, 87% of Democrats, 80% of independents. So it's off the charts in terms of polling. And so it, because people have grown and come to understand that this is America's program. Uh, we got into the majority this past year. Uh, prior to that, this bill was first introduced seven years ago. We couldn't even get a public hearing for six years. So, but now that we're in the majority, we've got six public hearings. We're doing it in regular order, and we hope to mark up the bill uh, prior to Thanksgiving in the committee, and then it'll go to the floor for a vote, I hope, before Christmas. But given other things that are going on in yes. Washington, it may are happen there, going shortly on after that. <laughs> I think it's great, and you've done a great job on that. And um, I know that uh, a lot of people are looking at it and saying, hey, finally something's going to get done because um, we need to see something happen so that people feel safe that they will be. And millennials need it more than baby boomers. And we can't emphasize this enough. And I say this to my children. Listen, you want to make sure there's a difference between a guarantee payment. And like we said before, in 2008, people's 401k became a 101k. You could outlive a pension benefit. You cannot outlive Social Security because it's the full faith and credit of the United States government. And what's the United States government? We, the people, the bond and the trust that we have in one another and our desire to make sure that nobody, nobody retires into poverty. And so we all work together. It has a 99% loss ratio. And what that means, and for the insurance listeners out there, et cetera, that means that it's the most efficient government program that we have. Could it be better? Yes. Can we make it more efficient? Absolutely. We need to make sure that we're speeding up the wait lines and the process to get through disability and make sure that we're dealing with fraud. And that's always something we like to talk about is don't give away that social security number. And there's a lot of people out there that try to that are always after your, your money, don't fall for yeah, any phone, of those tricks. The phone and calls that come it, into your house. Exactly. And they so know how to target the seniors the most on that. They do. And, and we got to make sure that we protect uh, our vulnerable uh, populations. So the, the question everybody's going to ask is, John, how do you pay for all of this? Simple. You know, this is uh, the same way it's always been paid for. Uh, you pay for it. Yep. And so when people say, well, what do you mean you pay for it? I said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take the contribution that you make and we're going to change, we're going to increase that by 1%. Now, if you got a premium from your insurance company and it only <laughs> went up 1%, We'd be flying you'd high. be pretty happy. <laughs> yeah. But even at 1%, I can understand people saying, well, you know, that could be a lot of money. So we take that 1% and we phase it in 
over 25 years so that the actual amount that you'll be paying on an annual basis if you're making $50,000 a year would be 50 cents a week. To have uh, a 2% across the board increase, to make sure that nobody can retire into poverty, to have a COLA that reflects your actual uh, uh, costs, and to have a small tax break if you continue to work. None of which are going to be, you know, make the program, you know, no one's going to get wealthy off of this, but everyone is going to be able to sustain themselves. And the other thing we do is lift the cap on people earning $400,000. Now, you'll appreciate this. I'm with the, in East Windsor about two weeks ago, and we had a senior forum there, and there were about, you know, I'd say 70 people that were there. And this one lady sitting in the front row, and she's looking at me, and I said, uh, all right, now raise your hand if you make more than $400,000, <laughs> knowing that nobody was going to do it, of course. But, and of course, nobody raised their, their hand, you know, and I said, well, see, we lift the cap on it. And so the lady raises her hand. She says, hey, not for nothing. Do you think I'd be sitting here with you if I have $400,000? I have a lot better things to do with my life. Then I couldn't stop laughing. I and I said, well, I got to take you around with me yeah, because you're pretty, you're really, pretty good. That helps a lot. <laughs> have somebody but, out there. So those are the two ways that we do it. We scrap the cap on people over 400000 And what does that do? That smooths out the edge, the edge being that there's 10,000 baby boomers a day that become eligible, and there's fewer millennials behind. But also, by having the contribution go up, that also gives us enough money so that the millennials don't have to worry. Now, and here's the god-awful plight for millennials. Number one... They have more college loan debt than any other uh, group in the history of the country. Harder to get a mortgage than any other at any other time in the country. They live in what is commonly referred to as a gig economy, so that there isn't the same kind of certainty and structure that there was when we were growing up. It's the first generation that may earn less than their parents. If anyone needs a guarantee, it's millennials, and the fact of the matter is, as the chief actuary points out, when you look at the return for what you'll receive with the guarantee, millennials are going to make out better than baby boomers, and rightfully so, because they're going to they're going to need it as much. So, this is intergenerational. It's just not a senior program, and I can't emphasize that enough. There's so many the the um, uh, disabled Veterans of America and others have come out and endorsed the program. The program is endorsed by hundreds of groups from the Committee to Preserve and Protect Social Security, Social Security Works, the AFL-CIO, uh, Disabled Veterans of America, and, uh, you know, I could go on and on and on with the list of people that support the uh, proposal, but it's important because they get what it provides not just in retirement, but also, uh, you know, uh, Connor Lamb, uh, you know, who's uh, from Western Pennsylvania, very conservative district. It's it demonstrates that when you have AOC, probably one of the most progressive people in Congress, and Connor Lamb, one of the most conservative, 
both share the same values on Social Security because they understand what it does for both of their communities. And whether you're rural poor or whether you're inner city poor or whether you're just a regular middle class person who worked hard and played by the rules, but not your fault what happened in 2008 and all of a sudden you're scrambling to try to regain your wealth and assets, you want to make sure that you that one guarantee that you know you can count on is going to be there. And it's not going to be hurtful if you get a little increase and a little bump and also very helpful to future generations for them to know, contrary to popular belief than what the Republicans try to feed you, it is going to be there. And the Republicans know this also. And the only way it won't be there if they do nothing and allow the program to be cut. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't think they're going to do that because I don't think they will either because it means something to their own families. And there at the are, same and there time. were, you know, I mentioned Eisenhower and Reagan, but there's many good Republicans as well. Their leadership has been somewhat opposed to us. And Paul Ryan, when he was speaker, called it, you know, this was part of entitlement reform. I mean, you, you are you kidding me? <laughs> you gave two trillion dollars, eighty three percent of the tax cut went to 1%, the nation's wealthiest 1%, and yeah, now yeah. you're going to say you're going to have entitlement reform and you're going to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid to pay for the Ridiculous. to pay for their tax cut? Yeah, Please. I can't do that. The American people will not stand I, for I, that. I don't think they will either. But let's go on to a different subject. And, and first of all, before we do that, thank you for all the work you've been doing on this. This is truly going to be, in my, my opinion, one of the biggest things that we have done or seen done um, in in Congress. Um, and it, you have helping so many people. So thank you so very, very much for the Social Security uh, Act. And the one other thing I'd love to talk to you about is, uh, you, which is something that you've been active on and, and you produce is the, the National Service, the Action on uh, for for national service, and you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, really, it's you're going to be helping an awful lot of people on this. Well, yeah, we think that this is again uh, another way. Um, we started this whole conversation about values and what is it that you learn from your parents uh, growing up, and it's the you know, you go up and you shovel Mrs. O'Brien's walk. You know, it's the volunteerism. Well, maybe that was a little forced because, <laughs> <laughs> but you get the picture. The idea was that you give back to your community. And uh, both my parents were um, very uh, committed to that. But of course, we grew up, you and I, at a time when we had a uh, incredibly inspirational president who was... Uh, young, charismatic, visionary, and uh, called upon a nation to head in a different uh, direction and uh, establish the Peace Corps and asked the country to, to give back and ask not, you know, what you can do for yourself, but what you can do for your country, you know, and that ethic and that spirit, especially from someone who was generally regarded as a child of privilege himself, who every aspect of their lives they gave back from military service forward to their to their country. So it'll come as no surprise, and he's been here several times to the state of Connecticut, that Joe Kennedy is a co-sponsor with me on this bill, as are 
as of today, 189 other um, members who essentially um, what we thought is a good way to deal with both helping people get to college or if not college to uh, get credentialed or get attainable skills in the workplace, uh, that a good way to assist them without them going further in debt and a good way if they've gone in debt to pay that off is to serve their country. So it's a pretty simple idea. For every year that you serve your country, we will give you the equivalent of two years of in-state college tuition. So, uh, or other applicable areas that you could apply, either in terms of paying off debt that you've occurred, furthering your education or skill levels or apprenticeships, uh, in return for your service to the country. Well, who determines that? Well, that would be determined by the Corporate, uh, Corporation for National and Community Service, which is set up as an institution. And there's the capability for people to uh, provide money uh, to that and also raise money. And ironically, again, and people, when you talk about this and look at the amount of service that you would get from people that are applying the bill pays for itself in terms of the work product that they would produce and do. And it's, I think, a better way of, of uh, instilling the value of both work and service to the country in return for helping you with a skill that's only going to help both you and the country right. be a better place. So... You know, for us in, in Connecticut, we we see so many of our young people coming back from the national on the National Guard now, and and um, this is such an act, a wonderful way. Of it's just them it back. is like a GI Bill for everyone, right? And in so many respects, that's an, a, a a clearer, more simplistic yeah. way to describe it than it, my. It's really no, it wasn't. No, you described it perfectly. I just, you know, especially nowadays, we are, in our state alone, we we're looking for our young people to go to college here, to stay here, to learn here, and so that we can fill jobs that we really need here. And so, what you're, what this is going to do, this was going to help a lot of people dedicate work in national service for uh, for a while, and then come back and. And there's no such thing, you know, you and I know this, there's no such thing as a free lunch, no. you know, and at some point along the food chain and along the work chain, somebody's got to do the work. And so why not imbue in people the notion that, you know what, if you give something to your country, that we will always appreciate that and stand by you. It's the same pack with Social Security. It's the full faith and credit of the United States government. Who in the entire United States wants to see some kid saddled with insurmountable debt and not have the means to pay it back? Now, I'm not saying just forgive debt. I'm saying provide an opportunity for them to work it off, to work through it. Uh, and whether it's to go to college or to get uh, some kind of apprenticeship training or whatever they need, that's one thing. Or having done that and been saddled, don't give up. Roll up your sleeves. Get to work. 
and then have the ability to pay that off. That's how we were raised. Right. Yes, and sure. uh, I, you know, those are, I think, part of the values that our parents and that uh, FDR and Harry Truman and John Kennedy and yeah, others want, all oh, provided. We were so lucky to to know our leaders and uh, have some great leaders in this country. And I believe you're one of them, John. So I want to thank you very much. And I know we're getting to the end, but I always ask at the end, um, you know, I, all these years in politics myself, you know, what words do I live by? And mine basically has always been my word was my bond. And so I think you should kind of talk about some of the words that you always live by and, and talked about your speeches and how you end them and, and tell people how you feel about well, uh, I have several, but uh, my favorite always has been because of where we grew up is that in the end, never forget your beginnings. And I think if you don't forget your beginnings and you understand um, what people go through in life and the sacrifice they have to, to make, that if, uh, as my father would say or grandfather would say, hey, don't become too big for your britches, you know, <laughs> and... Right. Uh, one of those things, uh, uh, you, uh, uh, I, I, I take that, I take that to, to heart and, uh, and you try to, in life, I think just, uh, the business we're in, we should be excited about the vitality of ideas and whether they're Democrat, Republican or independent or wherever they come from in a democracy if you've got a good idea, a gem of something that you can hone into, uh, something that will make society or someone's burden a little less, then it's not unlike shoveling Mrs. O'Brien's walk. You know, you go out there and uh, and boy, don't you don't you always feel better after you do something Absolutely. like that? Absolutely, when you can help you know, somebody. When you can help somebody, and especially, and not that you're looking for them to. Thank and God only knows you know as well as I do how many things you've done and how few people actually will ever say thank you. But you're not doing it to have people say thank you. You do it because, God, you know, I, I, I feel good about just having helped somebody out and you know that it helped them out in life. That's right. And, and you have done that. So many times, and I tell the story about um, when you and I served, you in the Senate and myself in the House, um, how you turned things around. It used to be what women's issues were, and, and that would be, you know, the, the taking care of the kids and making sure that health care and that kind of stuff. But when you were in the Senate, you made it the family plan that you were there to talk about the family. And it wasn't just um, the economics for the male and, and the social issues for the woman. You put it all together as a family package. And I want to thank you for that. And you really had brought that up. It wasn't a way that men always talked about it. But I know we're coming to the end. So I just want to say thank you so much again for everything that you do, your well, leadership. Well, thank you for having me. This is a great thing, podcast. It's new for me, you and I, podcast. Wow. Wow, wow. that's good. <laughs> pretty good. So thank Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Donkey Talk is available on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you liked it, remember to subscribe and visit ctdems.org to get involved.